Welcome back to Women of AV Poly. I'm your host, Deirdre Mitchell-McLean, coming from Strathmore, Alberta. And I'm Kathleen Smith, coming from the orange bubble that is Edmonton. (laughs) And we're a little lopsided today because both of our guests are actually in Calgary. With me today, Donna Kennedy-Glams, who was the MLA in Calgary Varsity from 2012 to 2015. Welcome, Donna. You need to say your name. You need to, we need to hear your voice. Oh, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> but the I'm, wave, the wave was great. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. I love your hair, Kathleen. Thank you. <laughs> you have hair like that. It's my <laughs> pandemic do. Just yes. let it go. Just let it go. <laughs> and I have Brandy Payne, who was the MLA for Calgary Acadia from 2015 to 2019. Welcome, Brandy. Hi, thanks. It's great to be here. Awesome. And so we're going to get right into this because we actually have to stick to a timeline today. So we're going to start with one of the, some of the benefits and some of the barriers to running for office for women. And I actually had a conversation with Brandy the other day. I really want to start with this because of the way that the visual that that set up for me. Yeah. So um, underneath the legislature, um, there's a a pedway, an underground uh, piece. And on this part, immediately below the legislature, they have uh, what they call members way. And so along the walls are photos of all of the previous legislatures, starting from the very first Alberta legislature uh, up till now, the 29th legislature uh, which was the one that that ended in 2019 that I was part of. Um, and when you walk down that hallway, one of the things you really notice is the photos is are full of white men. It's almost entirely white men in each and every one of the legislatures. And there's a few legislatures where we have we see like higher number of women, and particularly as we get into like the 2000s. But the part that really always struck me was, you know, in in 2015, we had the highest number of women elected to the Alberta legislature in our history. And I remember every time walking by that, I would think, what's it going to look like when our picture comes up? You know, when the the 29th one is up and we see just that 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 higher representation of of women in the legislature. And it was just always such a, a stunning thing to see, you know, like and especially like some of the like the really early ones where there's like one lone woman all by herself uh it was you know really quite the thing to remind me of the the importance of making sure that we've got you know a a diversity of people sitting at the table and sitting in the legislature that's an amazing visual to start with it is because i think we see it across the country at every level of government i know municipally right now edmonton has one woman councillor on our entire council, which is just, it's, it's not only uh, shocking, it's heartbreaking because it, it really speaks to how women's voices are time and time again, not at the table, not in the boardroom, not in the chambers, right? Where they need to be. Well, and that's where I found Donna's story quite interesting because there's so many other opportunities for women to be involved and to have some influence on policy without actually being an elected official. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and I always, when somebody, a woman or man is talking about running for politics, I always have that conversation with them 
there are lots of ways for you to influence and you don't have to be elected to influence, but it's a bit of a, a double-edged sword though. And I wanna go back to Brandy's comment about you know numbers. Um, I went to law school in 1984. At Western Law School in 1984, there were, um, the, half the class was female. If you looked now at who is practicing law from that class, it, it would be a very small percentage of females that were active. Now they're doing other mm -hmm. things, but I think the same challenge exists in politics. We can get the numbers and we can get women elected, but how does the public perceive them? And I think that gets to your, the bigger question of, do when the public looks at, when my constituency elected me in Calgary Varsity, did they see me as a, a community organizer who kind of got into politics? Um, I'm really tied to my community and I'm sure Brandy is tied to hers. And we were sort of, you know, taking it to another level or finding another platform to be able to advance the changes, participate in the decisions that we thought were important on behalf of our constituents. But we're grassroots politicians. And I think people look at female politicians at, on that kind of a trajectory and saying, well, you know, if you don't get elected, you're, you're going to still be an important voice for this community. But they don't, I don't think categorically they look at men the same way. And I'm not no. saying this is a hard and fast rule, but I'm saying it's something, there's something there in the public's mind about females in politics. And I think we need to kind of figure it out because I think it actually compromises our ability to compete in some cases. Yeah, I, I would suggest there's almost still a, a women as worker bee mentality when it comes to politics where uh, we're great for setting up chairs and making phone calls and organizing, but no matter how hard we work, we're still second choice when it comes to actually being elected to office. And then even when we aren't elected to office, we are still expected to contribute to the hive as much as we were doing beforehand. And that expectation isn't placed on the men who are permitted to sit back and be great pontificators over scotch and cigars. <laughs> it's almost like we would do the work anyway. So you know, if you're elected, right. but if, if you're not elected, you're still going to contribute. It's kind of like motherhood. It's kind of this, uh, you know, maternal thing where you, you sort of care about the community. You'll do anything for the community. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we, we are, you know, partially, that's my fault because I'm wired that way. But <laughs> that's a positive. And, and I can't, I think sometimes it ends up being a bit of a negative. So I, I'm going to throw it out there. I know it's controversial, but I think we need to talk through some of this stuff because it's a, it's a really hard gig going into politics. I mean, I did, um, Brandy's a lot younger than I am. I have very gray hair now, but <laughs> you know, when I went into politics, I had been a, a corporate lawyer. I'd been a vice president of an energy company. I've published, I've done all sorts of stuff, run an NGO in the country of Yemen. I thought, well, how much worse could it get than any of the things I've done in the past? It's <laughs> run for politics. When, when you run for politics and you decide not to run again, which is what I did, um, it's like you are branded with this, you know, brand of being a former politician and 
it actually constrains what you can do. I don't think it's terrible. I think it's manageable, but it does change what you can do. We're not America, we're Canada. It's not a brand that's, you know, it's not desirable by everybody that you have been a politician. So it's relevant. What you do is really relevant, I think, as a, as a, in, a in an elected role. I'm just going to let you take elected? that right now, Brandy. Yeah, I was going to jump in and say, I think, you know, I think it's, uh, these are really important points and really good points, because I think a, a piece of it too, you know, I also was one and done for terms, you know, I, I uh, was elected in 2015, served my term through the end of uh, 2019. Um, but I had no interest in signing up for a second term. And, and part of it was that, you know, my my family was here in Calgary and I spent most of my time in Edmonton and that wears on you, you know, especially you have, a, you have young family. Yeah. Yeah. So my daughter Cassidy was actually born while I was a cabinet minister, um, which by the way, I got some like nasty comments at my office about the fact that I chose to have a child while I was in a political role, which is funny because I, I think I took a week maternity leave uh, by which I mean, I was checking my email while nursing my two day old yeah. child at home mm -hmm. once I got home from the hospital. But you know, it's, uh, it's interesting to me, though, because I think there's this perception of, of women that um, we have to be this perfect mother, no matter what we do. And I think that that's part of what keeps women out of some of these, you know, high performing high power roles, you know, like Donna was mentioning about, um, you know, graduates from law school that the, the number of, of male and female uh, graduates tend to be on par, in fact, probably more women, because um, that's certainly the case in the in STEM fields. Um, but then by the time we get to senior leadership roles, or, you know, I'm, I'm in my early 40s, when we get to this point in our career, there's a lot less women around those, those leadership tables, a lot less women in those managerial positions. And it's not because the men are any better at the job. In fact, you know, when we look at the, the research around what makes a great leader, a lot of the, the characteristics that women have actually make for better, stronger leadership that leads stronger, more powerful, more innovative, more creative companies. And, you know, ultimately in, in the work I'm doing now as a, a mental health uh, consultant where I work with companies to, you know, build the resilience of their team and, and help identify strong leadership traits and build those up. You know, we, we talk about that a lot. The, the things that we identify as like feminine characteristics and that servant leadership thing is, is actually what helps be successful in this world. And yet it's so undervalued in our world. And, and in a lot of ways, women are really seen within the frame of our role as mothers and caregivers. Um, you know, and like, I think back to, you know, being a, a, at community events in the evening or weekends and, um, you know, being, uh, at the like MLA receptions and stuff like that, like just, you know, stuff in the evening and weekend, people would always ask how my, how my kids were, where my kids were. And it's like, they're with their dad in Calgary. <laughs> I'm here working. And my male counterparts that had kids the same age and even younger than mine never asked that. No one ever asked Graham Sucha where, who was watching his kids. No one ever asked Derek Fildebrandt, who was watching his daughter, like, mm -hmm. you know, and yet here we were parents of children of the same ages. And somehow my being absent from the home was a big deal. Whereas for them, it was like, of course, of course, the wife's watching them. Who else would it be? You know, and it's, it's, I think it's, uh, it speaks to a, a broader cultural challenge that we have, um, that women, 
are expected to be this certain type of mother and then show up in their community in a, in a certain way. And I think it really comes back to that ethic of care and that giving freely of, of care and support. And, you know, to, to Donna's point, that there's this expectation that, well, if she doesn't win or if she's not an MLA or if she's not in, you know, a leadership role, she's still going to look out for our community. She's still going to look out for our organization. So we don't need to support that. We don't need to celebrate that. We don't need to promote and pay for that. I think there's also, it it becomes a double whammy too, that uh, it's not only an added pressure women have to deal with and face when they are elected. It's also a way to silence women. And it's not just in politics, really. I mean, politics is where it's, uh, it's in the spotlight. It's definitely amplified, but we see it in every field women enter into. Princess Diana had to deal with it. Well, maybe she wouldn't be dead if she was back in England with her kids like a good mother is supposed to be. The narrative surrounding that went on for months. So I think it's used not only to attack us, but also to keep us out of politics and just keep it, keep us working at a grassroots level. Well, and I think too, it's uh, Dr. Mana Saleh out of the University of Edmonton or University, we, University we of Alberta. Highly, <laughs> highly recommended follow on the Twitter. Yes. She is an absolute delight, incredibly smart, wonderful follow on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And she was posting about something that she was reading yesterday. And she said that the way that, that young girls, and then of course, as they turn into women, were kind of told how, you know, to make a successful marriage and, and to have a successful family. And it's, it's about their sacrifice. And when I was, when I read that, the first thing that I went to was the opening scene of he's not, he's just not that into you where it's the little girls in the playground, the boy comes in and, you know, stomps on her sandcastle. And she's like, why did you do that? He's like, well, because you're poopy and you're dog poop or something. (laughs) And so she runs crying to her mother and her mother's like, you know why he did that? Because he likes you, right? You know, this is something that we are actually told uh, growing up. And I know I got it from my grandmother. Like, well, if you want to have kids, then, you know, you're going to need to learn how to cook. You're going to want to cook for your family and stuff. And I said, no, I'll just marry a chef, which I did. Turns out that it- <laughs> Marrying a man who cooks is a good life strategy. I follow (laughs) that one. It's brilliant. It is. It is. It would have been better if he cooked more at home. Um, But (laughs) it, if you want to have a career, well, then maybe you should hold off having children. Or if you want to do this, it's always, uh, it's always kind of set up as a sacrifice. Um, Well, it's always women running for office. You should wait until your children are older, but no one's, no one says that to men. It, it also tends to require women to take on what are traditionally described as masculine attributes. I see that changing uh, somewhat now, but for for most of my lifetime, a woman going into a professional field or into politics was told that if she wants to be successful, she must be one of the boys. Mm. There's no crying at the office. Well, why isn't there crying at the office? Because men don't cry. Women cry. <laughs> why can't we cry at the office? There, there was already this set of rules 
that we were told we had to play by that we had no part in constructing or agreeing upon. And I think, again, in politics, that's very amplified. We expect women to represent us in ways that would be traditionally masculine. We want them to show a bit of compassion, but not too much compassion. We want to see a bit of emotion, but hold back there, girl, you're getting hysterical. (laughs) Simmer down a little. And I think that too keeps keeps women back because we become afraid that our emotions, our compassion, our caring are actually detriments to the job. I I hear you. And I, that's been a really big challenge, but I, I agree with Brandy and I think it's getting to, I think with ESG and companies, environment, social and governance, we're starting to see that companies that succeed are ones where there's a diversity of perspective. I, I sit on boards and, and I chair governance committees and, and we're talking about recruiting a board board team. And you know, you, you could recruit everybody that looked like you and thought like you, and it would make life really easy for a, for a nanosecond and it wouldn't be very creative. And I, and I think boards and companies and even politics are starting to get to a place where they understand that that's a huge value add in a corporate setting. It's a huge value add in non-for-profit. Why wouldn't it be the same in politics? Uh, the other um, thing I wanted to mention in, in response to um, Brandy's comment about you know where you what you do when you you have children and how do you kind of counter those expectations that you're going to go all maternal on them? As as <laughs> um, oh my God, how awful is that? Right. <laughs> I, I'll, I, I have now children who are, you know, late 20s, early 30s. I've, my husband and I have three sons, which I think is a great, a great amusement to me. God clearly has a sense of humor. <laughs> like being three sons. A place I, I have the same and I agree. Yes. Yeah, it, it's lovely, <laughs> but it, I'm loving the daughter-in-law part. I'm really, really <laughs> loving But when I got pregnant with, my, with our first son um, a long time ago, I, I worked for TransCanada Pipelines. It was a really big, tough company, real macho place. And I had to go in and tell the president of Trans, this is not a story, TransCanada Pipelines that I was pregnant and that I would like to continue to work. Now, can you imagine? I was like, are you kidding me when my boss said that? And he went, no, like, Donna, they'll assume you're going to, leave and and I don't get that sense from you because I'm really ambitious and I here I go into this office of this you know like really tough guy mm-hmm. and say like you know um I'm pregnant but I want to keep working and we both laughed and it broke the ice that's a hell of, my husband didn't have to do any of those things no but he assumed that he was going to be there but I did travel and Brandy to your point Traveling to Edmonton is as difficult as traveling to Yemen. I worked in 35 countries when I was working in the first 25 years of my career. I was gone. Like, I would go and I would come back. My husband and I had a rule, simple rule. One of us was home at 5 o'clock every night and was home for the evening. It didn't matter. If he traveled, I was home. If I traveled, he was home. That, and, and that was an unbreakable rule. And it worked for us. I, I, it, everybody has to work out their own 
plan or strategy. But I don't think things have changed that much. I mean, if somebody gets pregnant now, like there are assumptions made and people yeah. are doing you a favor. Ab- absolutely. And as someone who's had those conversations not long ago, <laughs> like so my, so my oldest is, uh, is nine now. And uh, I, when I was pregnant with her, I was working at a, a small oil and gas producing company. And yeah, the assumption was that I wasn't coming back from maternity leave. Um, and it was like, I actually was not even sure I would get to keep my job if I, once I said that I was pregnant. And so, you know, cause I was working as a, as a contractor there. And I mean, you know, we, we extend the contract to um, when Zoe was born, but at the same time, like it was, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, I don't think it's an easier conversation. I think now there's a lot of assumptions that women might not come back from maternity leave the, you know, and, and with, you know, the opportunity for a year long maternity leave or even longer now, um, you know, that gives, uh, you know, women a chance to be with their, their littles when they're really little. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of an unspoken, well, I don't know if she's coming back, especially when you start getting into second and third kiddos, you know, and um, I think that part of the challenge too, is that so many families that I talk to, and like so many of my friends, the, the way that families do the calculus on daycare is that it comes out of mom's paycheck. We have to make sure it fits in mom's paycheck for it to make sense for her to go back to work. When it's like, you both made the kid. Daycare is a family (laughs) expense, yo. And and so I think like that's such an important part. And, you know, as you were talking uh, about traveling, Donna, it's it's interesting to me because I know a lot of women um, who they're, it's their husband that, that works out of town who goes away um, for work. And I, we, the joke was that I'm like the dad, when I was in MLA, I was like the dad who went up North for a week at a time and came home and messed up the routine. Cause most of my <laughs> friends whose husbands worked up North had that problem. Dad would mm-hmm. come home and mess up the routine. Uh, but the thing is like, they, they all had the rule that they couldn't go out in the evening. They'd never hire a babysitter. Never, not ever, not to go to like, the gym or yoga class or coffee with friends or even for a work thing if their husband was gone they had to be home my husband never thought twice about getting a babysitter it was normal <laughs> for him. he's like well I, I gotta go to the boxing gym I need to do my self-care so that I can be here for these kids emotionally and I was like damn we should all be like that what, what how how do we get women to think this way too because ultimately that lets us be better versions of ourselves in every part of our lives. And then it's also like, you're still a great mom if you go to the gym. In fact, you're probably a better mom if you go to the gym because you've taken care of yourself. This shining the light, I think, on, on that gender difference on it was, I think, really helpful because, you know, it is unusual for it to be the father who's the primary caregiver. As much of the work mm-hmm. as we've been doing and as much of the work as, as the women's movement has done through the generations, it is still mom who's the default caregiver. And I think like one of my, my favorite quotes from, from Ruth Bader Ginsburg was that the one about this child has two parents, alternate which one you call. Yeah. You know, it was just so profound. And I remember our school, like when we registered Zoe for school, the school being like, wait, the dad's the primary contact? Are you sure? And it's like, yeah, mom, mom's in Edmonton five days out of the four out of five school days. Like I'm, I wasn't the one you called <laughs> when yeah. there was an emergency. It was 
Scott. He was the one who comes in. <laughs> you know, my, my husband is a uh, successful lawyer and a partner in his firm, and he is the main contact on all of our daughter's school work, all of her school registration, everything. And I'm a stay-at-home mom. I call myself a trophy wife, but <laughs> I'm a stay-at-home mom. We did it that way because I handle her ongoing chronic illness. I handle her, her medical care, her orthodontist stuff yep. and <laughs> all that fun stuff. And he handles the schoolwork. There's a problem with a teacher. He's the one who sorts through it because mm. it, it can't just be me taking care of everything and him not knowing anything either. And to get back to Brandy's point where, you know, women are less inclined to put in the self-care because they're focused on their children. It's not only our children, we're focused on our partners too. We will time and time again, worry about, okay, he's stressed. What can I do to alleviate his stress? He needs me here to keep these kids out of his hair because he can't take it tonight. He's got too much on his mind. But does that happen for us? Do we allow it to happen for us? Or do we tell our partners, I need you to do this for me too. This is emotional labor we should both be doing for when we need it. So I think women take on so much, uh, not just with our children, but with our husbands, that we just keep getting bumped further down the list, right? Actually, I'm really fortunate. My husband um, really took on parenting as a 50-50 proposition. And, and when people talk about, you know, you're so lucky you had these opportunities, I point to that. He, he took it on, loves it. Um, we're now um, first-time grandparents of a baby girl. Yay. I'm so jealous. Congratulations. <laughs> <I'm> so jealous. <laughs> it's just the most lovely thing in the world to have a grandchild. Um, she has leukemia, though, so that's a very, very oh. difficult thing. She's an infant with leukemia, so it, you know, all, all, everybody's on board, everybody's helping with this. It's tough. But my husband stepped up, he coached, he, he took, you know, he took his turn in the classroom, he was a parent volunteer, um, because I wasn't here. Like, if you go to Nigeria, you don't go for three days, you go for 10. So it was, it was part of, but it was, he was comfortable with it. And, you know, it took a lot of kind of push back um and, and brandy you talk about that how you coach your friends to think differently it took some pushing back you know with his guy friends to say you know oh you're like daddy tonight and he go well yeah actually i'm daddy every night but you know I, it, it just i like doing this this doesn't affect my rep, my sense of who i am uh, in fact i really really enjoy being with these kids and i really like being their father that meant everything for me. To, so that's a big, big part of the strategy here. And, and if you don't have kids, I mean, I think there are lots of other challenges and issues, but it, that negotiating of how you co-parent, ooh, that's a big one. Throughout the pandemic, my especially when our kids were home from school and daycare, uh, my husband and I split the day. So we each had half a day of focus work time and half a day of frantic parenting and working time. And then a little bit of like evening and sometimes weekend work because, you know, pandemic parenting is a thing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like we, 
I was unique amongst my friends for that and amongst most people I talked to. And when I would tell people about our arrangement where we kind of divvied up the work day so that we each got chunks of focus work, the response was, you're so lucky. You're so lucky. I'm like, how is this luck? This should be normal. We both made these kids. They're both of our responsibility. And we both have careers that are also our responsibilities. What you're describing though is intentional. And and I think that's important. I came off a farm. So, you know, like- Everybody worked. Everybody worked, but it was clear, like my dad's and brother's name was on the barn. It wasn't mine. You know, I came from a really patriarchal um, community. So I, I think, you know, neither one of us came from a place where our moms were like the visible leaders. They were the invisible leaders. I, I don't know. I think it's about really being intentional with your partner and sort of saying, you want me to, you know, I'm going to run for politics. I'm going to need you to be there for these things. Like we're going to have to change how we do what we do and, and the expectations. I think we're going to have to change it systemically too, though. Yeah. You know, I, Brandy, I, I recall there was uh, you and I think Stephanie McLean also had a baby. Yeah, uh, and Kathleen Ganley. Right. And I the, remember the first three, the first three women in Alberta politics to have babies while they which were seated, was, all within like a year and a half of each other. And it was something <laughs> wonderful to celebrate. Uh, I remember Stephanie bringing her baby into the question, into question period at one point and the immediate attacks on her and the attacks on her for campaigning while pregnant and it really made me think about how we have to change the entire system if we want to have true equality. Yes, women should be able to bring a newborn baby into question period or into the office or wherever they work. And why don't we have daycare as part of workplaces? Why aren't we doing that? Because then men can take children to the daycare at their workplace too and tell the entire structure around uh, women being in the workforce changes. I think we're still going to to battle uh, this perception that a woman's priority should always be in the home with the children. And Donna said something, uh, you know, this damned if you do, damned if you don't, about what women who enter politics and don't have children face. Just as an example, we saw that with Danielle Smith. Now, not a huge fan, admittedly, but I, I will say that the attacks that Danielle withstood uh, during the, the election that um, the PCAA eventually won were, were pretty horrible. The, this, you know, well, maybe she doesn't have children because she'd eat her own. It's nobody's business why she doesn't have children. Uh, her, if it's medical, if it's a personal decision, whatever, it's nobody's business, but she was attacked for that nonstop. And yet if women enter politics with a home full of children, well, then they're attacked for not being home with their children. It's become another way to keep us silent and keep us from running in the workplace in the, in the first place, and then just keep us being the worker bees. 
Yeah. And I think like that's, that's the real challenge is that I think for a lot of women in politics, especially you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, if you don't Mm -hmm. smile enough, you're a bitch. If you smile too much, you're hiding something or you're fake or it doesn't really matter. Like it's it's like, no matter what you do, if you have kids, you should be at home with them. If you don't have kids, why aren't you home? Like, why didn't you have kids? What's wrong with you? Uh, and, And ultimately, you know, women are, are treated almost like an abstraction, like not as actual individuals with that are agents of their own life and agents of choice who can make decisions about what's best for them and their families that maybe don't fit with a traditional quote unquote view of how things should be, but also that like, there's, I think there's also a bit of a dis- diminishment of, of the ideas that women have or the rules that women should have within government and, you know, oh, she can't take on that portfolio. It requires too much this, that, or the other thing. Or of course she's in the ch- responsible for children's services. That's an appropriate spot for a woman and things like that. You know, And I think that that's mm-hmm. really problematic when we forget that women are capable of so much right like and and um and that the decision to have a family to have kids or not have kids is irrelevant to whether or not you'd be good at politics and be able to be a good leader the decision to run when your kids are younger or when your kids are older is not in like that that doesn't define whether or not you'd be a good person because i think you know it's it's important to have people who represent our values, who look like us, and who are at a variety of ages and stages of their lives around that table. And I think like, you know, when I think back to my experience in the legislature and in government, looking around that room in the chamber, what was really cool about it was that there was that variety of ages. We had people who like, paused their university degrees because they became MLAs. We had folks who came out of retirement to become MLAs and we had everyone in between. Mm -hmm. And I think that that brought a value and a sense of um, a better sense of representation to the table and into that chamber to have folks from those different stages of their lives. Because, you know, what matters to us in our 20s, our 30s, our 40s, our 50s, our 60s, our 70s and beyond, it's different. And the perspectives that we bring are different and none is better or worse, but having that representation uh, in the halls of power, I think is so critically important. And, And that's why like for me, it's just so important to make sure that we, if we're not gonna be the people putting our hands up to be in those positions, which fair enough, there's a lot of reasons why someone would not want to run for politics. Yeah, for um, me, it's I just don't like people enough. <laughs> well, you can, I, you can fake it. <laughs> but see, I, I, I'm actually quite serious. I, I considered running for city councilor for uh, my ward in Edmonton quite a few years back. And I met with Karen Libabici, whom I absolutely adore. And there's a woman who has really dedicated her life to, to public service. She's been such a role model for me, but I met with her for a brief coffee to discuss with her, you know, the requirements and the pressures that she's felt. And by the end of our conversation, I thought, you know, this woman is a saint for what she's done and hell no, am I going to do this? Cause I, <laughs> I really, I mean, people know who I am on Twitter. I, I, what is it that, um, the, the woman from the Harry Potter films, Dame Maggie Smith. Oh, yes. Maggie, Maggie Smith has a saying where she says, I don't suffer fools 
and fools don't suffer me. <laughs> and that's, that's my approach to my, my Twitter profile as well. And it's because I don't have a lot of patience for nonsense. And I think your capacity for entertaining nonsense as an elected official must be massive because it's constant nonsense all the time. And I don't think I could withstand that. But maybe it would be better. I almost, it's hard to call you Kathleen. I want to call you Kiki. That's okay. Most people do. So I'm good with it. Maybe it would be better if politicians didn't do that. Maybe it would be better if politicians said, you know, I get it. You have your voice. You get to say what you want. You can believe what you want. But really what you're proposing is is um, a view that's held by like 0.0005% of Albertans. So while it's relevant to you, it's, it's not really important for the decision-making process. You know, I think we could do with a little more of that because I think politicians have, you know, this kind of like, you know, yes, 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 yes. That's just insanity. There is no yeah. yes, yes, yes in politics. Politics is all about getting the right information, prioritizing decisions and making decisions and implementing them. I wish people would do that. That would make me happier. And, and I don't suffer fools lightly either. It's been a criticism directed at me as a female. If I was a guy wired like I am, I probably would be admired for it. But I'm Assertive. Not. Yeah, well, assertive bordering on aggressive. And I go, you know what? If you, you don't, as a, I will listen to anybody, and I will really listen. But if what you're saying is self-interested or not relevant to the decision or only representative of a minute group of, of people, then I've listened, and that's the end of it. And yeah. I, I'm okay with that. But it's like, oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be like that, Donna. I, I've been scolded about that a long time in my career. I, I actually think it's a good trait to have to, to be able to say, now this is nonsense yeah. and I've heard it, but we're not going forward with this. The fact that we have entertained so much nonsense over the past decade in the form of political nonsense, science denialism, just nonsense is why we're in such a mess now because we have too many politicians and too much of the media for that matter playing servant of two masters and you cannot do that in this this very problematic and trying era that we find ourselves in we have to be able to say this is fact this is non-fact this is the proper best approach this is the one that's going to get us nowhere and there aren't enough politicians who are willing to do that because they are so beholden to donors to their base and too often to their own ideology that they will not entertain facts over pandering well i mean it, part of the challenge is that it's baked into the way that women are socialized, you know, and and it's because we have fewer resources, you know, we earn less money where there's different barriers placed in front of women. uh, And so be likeability 
has been a strategy for gaining resources. Uh, and, and that is a systemic problem. That's a cultural problem. And it's something that, you know, is really important for me personally and within my family and within my community to build against that and to work against that. And I mean, it's, you know, we, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about how this impacts women. And I would, I would argue it's even more of a greater impact for, for women of color um, and other people of color because they have even fewer resources and that, that intersectionality and that compounding of marginalized identities, who you are, right? It, it means that you have to be a certain way to get anywhere. Uh, you know, you, we, if we, you know, brought on a black woman or a black man and asked them about that, they would, in their honest moments, tell us how they have to play it like ability to get ahead. And it's the same thing for women in leadership positions, whether it's politics or corporate, we have to act a certain way in order to get anywhere. If we look at like, you know, I, I, I can't help but like, look at, you know, Deirdre's Hillary Clinton election sign. There is a fine example of a woman who was called unlikable all the time because she didn't pander to likability because yeah. she didn't always have a smile plastered on her face or a little giggle or like a, oh yeah, that's a great idea. We'll take that under advisement. And yet without <laughs> a doubt, the most qualified human being who had ever run for that 100%, job. 100%. Ever. 100%. And yet considered unlikable. And so I think like, I, I 100% agree. There's a lot of work to be done and, and deconditioning ourselves from the likability imperative is, is really important. Uh, and, and, and recognizing that we don't have to be liked to be successful, but also recognizing the ways in which the world we live in and the culture we live in constrains us and, and puts that pressure on us is also important. Because I don't, I don't think it's fair to women to say, look, you just have to not worry about being liked. It'll be fine. Like, right. <laughs> that's not how this works. I wish it was. Oh, God, I wish it was. I want my daughters to grow up in the world where that is true. But at this point, I'm hoping for my grandkids. You know what? We talk about boys and, and the, the, the male sex, but really this is a, this is a challenge for women with women. Oh, absolutely when it is. Competition, when I was elected and I made decisions about leaving cabinet um, and leaving, you know, sitting independent. I got the most criticism from females and, and, and I, that really hurt. Like some of these people are people who I would have said were friends and they were, aghast that I would have done that and you know I couldn't tell him at the time that I had left because of this terrible you know set of facts I, I couldn't talk about it for quite a few years but I was kind of like do you think that you know like I wouldn't just leave you, you know that right like I, I'm not like that so you know me and yet now you're kind of like you know, it was really strange. I think women are really hard on other women. Oh, the difference yeah, between what you experienced and what I believe it was Len experienced, where Len was the hero. Yeah. Len was the warrior for what was right. And then you did it and you were a traitor. You were betraying the premier. You were betraying the party. It was mind boggling to watch because the man can do it and be the, the great savior leading us out of darkness. But if the woman does it, she's betrayed everyone. Right. It was stunning. It was a, it was almost, it was, it was surreal. Um, it was an exaggerated experience, obviously, but, and I had my reasons for doing it, which were different than Lens, but it was 
uncanny to me that women's response to me was different than men's response to that decision. Men were kind of, well, must something really must have been up for you to do that. And they trusted me. And, and some women were like, oh, you just didn't like Allison. And I'm going like, does that even matter? Like, <laughs> kind of irrelevant. Like, that's so- That's exactly what I was kind of thinking though, Donna, is because it was, because it was under Allison Redford, because she was our first female premier, there was an expectation that I guess any woman should have done more to support her in that role. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that had something to do with it. Whereas if, if, if it was when Prentice was in, you know, if that's the time that you had chosen, maybe people wouldn't have made, well, maybe specifically women mm. wouldn't have taken so much issue with it. We saw it with um, Jody Wilson-Raybould and actually it was when Jody came out with her facts that I finally went and, and had conversations with people to make sure that it was legally appropriate for me to say why I had sat independent, which was I was in cabinet, I was on treasury board, and we were told by Allison's chief of staff, told to support a transfer of $3 billion out of the Heritage Savings Trust Fund in 2014, for three weeks before the budget. Hold. And I've, I sit on the board of Transparency International in West Africa and in Canada. I've dealt with corruption my whole career. And I'm looking at the chief of staff telling us, you will approve the transfer of $3 billion out of the Heritage Fund to a fund that the premier can direct. Those were his words. And we voted on it and I voted against it. And I'm sitting there going, holy shit, this is unbelievable. How did I get in this space? I was in cabinet, so I had cabinet confidentiality. I was on treasury board, treasury board confidentiality. Couldn't say a damn word. Sat there for three weeks, said, I support this budget, but boys and girls, I do not support taking $3 billion out of a heritage fund without the approval of Albertans. And I will not support that. Like, do you understand this? And they said, oh, it'll be okay. I said, no, it's not gonna be okay. You can't do that. So. They knew what I was going to do, and I did it. I sat independent because I wasn't going to go to another party, and I didn't know what to do. I wasn't in caucus. I was in cabinet. So I sat independent, and Allison resigned two days later. Why do you think she resigned? <laughs> and I could never say anything. Yeah. I could never say anything. And then when I went back to the party, Prentice put me in the back corner, and I said to Jim, Jim, like, you understand why I'm why I went over at the other corner. Why are you leaving me in this corner? Do you support the fact that somebody's asked for $3 billion to be moved out of the heritage fund? Like, what's your message here? Oh, it'll take some time. I said, Jim, it's pretty clear to me, either you support that or you don't. Yeah. And then he decided to run a year early. And I just looked at it and I said, I liked him a lot, but I said, I, I can't comfortably run I think you're running way too early I don't think you've got support and my worst nightmare is me getting elected in varsity which I could have possibly and then sitting with an NDP government I mean no offense Brandy but I'm not NDP so <laughs> not like I'm a progressive conservative it would have been really hard and, and I said you just like this is wrong and and I decided not to run that was not my intention to do one term I would have done happily done two terms but it was you know I couldn't say any of those things and just like Wilson Raybould it was kind of like a 
whoa, she's this, she's that. I'm poor, you, you need to be liked. And I think for women, that's a big issue. I, I mean, I would be nice to be liked, but there are lots of people who don't like me and I'm okay with that. Not because <laughs> I'm arrogant, because I'm not arrogant, but because there are lots of people who probably don't like the decisions I've made, don't like how I analyze decisions, don't like how I present. And they're entitled to that, but I I can't run, I couldn't run a political career. Good Lord, look what I did in my political career. It was pretty crashing. <laughs> it was a pretty tough political trajectory. It's certainly not what I envisioned, but I didn't make those choices to be liked. And I think for women, it's really hard not to be liked. And I, we gotta stop that shit. Mm -hmm.